Finding the right mentor can make all the difference in your research journey. But what if you don't have one? Look no further than Mentors at Your Benchside, the podcast that offers curated advice from experienced researchers on lab skills, techniques, and career progression. With short, easy-to-access episodes, you can get the help you need to succeed in the lab. Visit bitesizebio.com forward slash podcasts or search for Mentors at Your Benchside in your podcast app to subscribe and get help and advice from seasoned scientists. Thank you for downloading the webinars podcast from Bitesize Bio, the missing manual for bioscientists. The full version of this webinar can be viewed by navigating to bitesizebio.com slash webinars and clicking on the name of the sponsor, which can be found in the list on the right-hand side of the page. Hello, this is Amanda Welch welcoming you to this Bite Size Bio webinar, which today is sponsored by Leica Microsystems. Leica Microsystems develops and manufactures microscopes and scientific instruments for the analysis of microstructures and nanostructures. Widely recognized for optical precision and innovative technology, the company is one of the market leaders in compound stereo microscopy, digital microscopy, confocal laser scanning and super resolution microscopy with related imaging systems, electron microscopy sample preparation, and surgical microscopy. Today's presentation is titled Expanding the Limits of Electron Microscopy Sample Preparation with Leica EM Ice High Pressure Freezer and is being presented by Dr. Julia Koenig, Product Manager of EM Sample Preparation for Cryo Workflow, and Dr. Frederick Leroux, Advanced Workflow Specialist at Leica Microsystems. Julia was born in Germany and studied biology at Dresden University of Technology. For her diploma and PhD thesis, she joined the laboratory of Dr. Thomas Müller-Reichardt at the Max Planck Institute of Molecular Cell Biology and Genetics and the medical faculty at Dresden University of Technology. There, she used correlative light and electron microscopy, as well as electron tomography, to analyze the ultrastructures of nematode embryos during different stages of cell division. After finishing her PhD in 2015, she joined the electron microscopy facility of Lucy Collinson at the Francis Crick Institute in London, working on a wide variety of electron microscopy projects, as well as methods and workflow development. In January 2018, she joined Leica Microsystems as a product manager for EM sample preparation for cryo workflows. Frederick completed his master's degree in biology in 2007 at the University of Ghent, where he gained experience in, experience in biological EM sample preparation. In 2008, he moved to the physics department at the University of Antwerp, where he started his PhD. He received his PhD in 2012. After two years as a postdoctoral researcher, he became EM sample preparation specialist at EMAT. At the EMAT research group, he specialized in advanced electron microscopy of composite materials. And then in 2016, he joined Leica Microsystems as an application specialist in nanotechnology in the EMEA. He uses his multidisciplinary background and broad microscopy experience to improve EM sample preparation of a variety of materials, including polymers, composites, and biological and industrial materials. Now, as always, we have a question and answer session after the presentation. So please type any questions you have into the questions box, which appears on the right-hand side of your screen, and I'll put them to Julia and Frederick at the end. The recording of the webinar will be available at bit.ly slash EM ICE webinar. That's bit.ly slash EM ICE webinar, all one word, lowercase. So now over to you, Julia and Frederick, for the presentation. Thank you, Amanda, for the introduction and welcome, everybody. 
uh, today's topic of the webinar is extending the limits of EM sample preparation with the Leica EM ice high pressure freezer. The first thing I shortly want to talk about is the principle of high pressure freezing. So the goal of high pressure freezing is the formation of amorphous or vitreous ice, which is actually not a real form of ice, but it's a very viscous form of water. The re uh, theoretical basis of this principle, um, according to Le Chatelier, is that the volume of water increases when it freezes. However, with high pressure freezing, we try to inhibit this, and thereby inhibiting the formation of the ice crystal formation. Uh, to do that, we have to alter the properties of water. And the first thing is that by applying the high pressure, we reduce uh, the freezing point, what you can see here from around zero degrees to minus 20 degrees. The second part is that the high pressure reduces the rate of ice crystal formation. And, and the third thing is also that it slows down the growth of the ice crystals. So in practice, this means by applying high pressure, on um, the sample, we can uh, delay the ice crystal formation up to 100 milliseconds, which is the time point where hopefully our sample, because of the liquid nitrogen, is already frozen. So when we look at the actual freezing graph here on the right side, you can see that the temperature drop happens quite early after the initialization of the freezing process. So between 40 to 60 milliseconds after the initialization, the sample should be already be frozen. This is a little bit sample dependent. We, um, with the system, we have the pressure which stays much longer up, and this is to avoid any recrystallization or second crystallization events during the uh, vitrification process. So the question is now, why are we actually going to do this? What are the advantages of this approach? So you know from uh, electron microscopy, the, the most common used um, fixation method is the so-called chemical fixation, which has a few big advantages. For example, it is super easy to do, and it is applicable for a wide variety of samples, big ones and also small samples. However, uh, with the chemical fixation, you introduce a lot of artifacts uh, by the fixation itself, by the cross-binding of the proteins, but also when you bring in the heavy metals like osmium, when you dehydrate your sample or you infiltrate it in a specific resin. With this kind of approaches, normally you lose all your fluorescence in the sample as well as your antigenicity. And this is why the cryofixation is so superior it doesn't only give you a much uh, better ultrastructure because we have our samples still in the watery state, it also preserves the fluorescence and the antigenicity in the sample. However, cryo workflows, high pressure freezing and freeze substitution are quite challenging because first the sample size is super small, only up to 200 microns, and the workflows in general are, are uh, a bit more complicated um, to do. Um, in the next few minutes, I would like to talk a little bit about the freezing principle which we use in the EMI. But before I do this, I would shortly give you a short overview about the history of high pressure freezing in Leica. So, the first high pressure freezer was launched in 2000, which is the EMPEX system. And in 2008, there was then the second version of the EMPACT. 
I will talk about the freezing principle of this machine in a second. Uh, in 2008, also Leica bought uh, Baltec, which had their own high-pressure freezer, the HPM100, which then moved, moved also into the portfolio of Leica. However, at some point, there was the decision to create one machine um, that adds uh, together all the advantages of both systems. And this was when, in 2015, the EMI was launched. So, a short um, introduction to the freezing principle of the EMPACT. So, the EMPACT system is a system that uses an uncoupled pressurization and cooling event. So we have more or less now two liquids in the system who do the freezing process. The first one is the hydraulic uh, liquid for pressure building. In this case, it's methyl cyclohexane, which pressurizes the sample. And then we have um, our uh, cooling um, liquid, which is uh, liquid nitrogen, um, which is also pressurized to 10 bar. Um, uh, to cool the system or to cool the sample down. The big advantage of this um, process is this uncoupled pressure and cooling because with this way you can play with different pressures and with different cooling times after the pressure initiation. The HPM100 on the other side uses a totally different approach for pressure uh, um, setup and cooling the sample. In this system, the pressurization and cooling liquid is the same. It's liquid nitrogen that is used. So we have um, a pressurized liquid nitrogen that sits in front of the valve. On the other side of the valve is the pressure chamber. The pressure chamber can be filled with alcohol, but in the, uh, uh, in the HPM100 system, it can be also used without. As soon as the uh, needle valve opens, the pressurized liquid nitrogen streams inside the um, chamber Pressure is building up and the cooling um, starts immediately. So this is a, a bit of a different design how to do the, um, yeah, the freezing of the sample. Another advantage of this machine was that already the light simulation was possible and the system introduced a cartridge system for samples, which I will talk about a little bit later again. So the Leica EMIs now, is our current product and the freezing principle or the basis of the freezing principle is quite similar to what was established um, in the HPM 100. However, there are a few major differences. The first one is that we have a pneumatic pressurization instead of a hydraulic one. So this um, is a, a, yeah, a change which, which makes the pressure building in the system more reliable and requires less maintenance. And we have also no alcohol at all in the chamber anymore. Furthermore, we still use um, the cartridge systems, um, which are optimized for the different sample types. So we have um, cartridges. They always consist of two half cylinders with um, the fours, which you can see here, and the middle plates where the sample lays in. The cartridges are different depending on the sample type you use. If you use flat cement carrier or interlocking carrier or the tube system. However, um, the cartridges are optimized, um, yeah, uh, optimize the liquid nitrogen flow towards the sample. So what we want to 
get with this kind of cartridge system is that we have always, depending on the sample type you use, an optimal freezing event. So we have the sample optimized cartridges for the improved freezing quality. In the next um, slide, I want to show you how the freezing in the EMIs actually happens. I think this is um, quite interesting to understand. So again, we have here our pressure chamber. In front of the pressure chamber, we have the needle valve. And in front of this, we have the um, liquid nitrogen sitting there. In the first step, we pressurize the liquid nitrogen. Then we have the pressurized liquid nitrogen sitting in front of the needle valve and in front of the um, empty pressure chamber. Then we have our cartridge, which is located in the sample arm, moving inside the pressure chamber. Then we open the needle valve and the liquid nitrogen streams along the furrows um, around the sample freeze it. The residual uh, nitrogen gas uh, can, be, uh, can evaporate um, through, uh, through the nozzle, which is at the end of the system. Then we have our frozen sample and the pressure chamber is empty. We retract the sample in the sample arm, clamp the sample, the sample arm retracts, and the sample falls down in the dewer. All of this happens within a second. And um, to understand this a little bit more clearly and see how this works in the uh, machine itself, I prepared a little movie where you can actually see how the machine is doing all these steps. In the first part of the movie, you will see it in real time and in the second part in slow motion. So this is for how it looks in real time. And now we can uh, directly see how the sample arm is picking up the sample from the loading station, moving it into the pressure chamber where the freezing happens. Now the sample arm is retracted, clamped, sample arm moves out and the sample falls down into the um, cure. So, what are the advantages of this uh, specific freezing principle? The first, as I said, is that we um, use a um, pneumatic instead of a hydraulic pressurization mechanism. This means that the system pressure of the uh, machine is very low, only 10 bar, and we don't need any hydraulic oil anymore which makes the system, um, yeah, requires less maintenance on the whole system. The second part is that we have a faster pressure increase in the pressure chamber. The sample is cooled down immediately after the pressurization, and the cooling rate is not influenced by turbulences at the ethanol or liquid nitrogen interface, which also means that we have only a minimum of pressure-induced artifacts. So, we have no effect of residual alcohol uh, on the sample and the carrier. And a really critical part is also that we have a well-defined light and electrical stimulation timing. So bringing this together, this means that we have a uh, faster sample cooling due to an alcohol-free pressure chamber. 
And uh, before I now had hand over to my colleague Frederick, I would like uh, uh, like to shortly come back to the cartridge system we discussed earlier. Um, the sample-specific design allows us also to use the high-pressure freezing for new fields of applications, in this case, uh, crystallography. And I want to shortly give you a summary how crystallography works. Uh, yeah. So we have the protein crystal at the beginning, which um, is cooled down, and then we can do the X-ray analysis. Um, with this X-ray analysis, you get then the diffraction pattern that then can be calculated um, to an electron density map. And out of this electron density map, you can um, create your atomic model. Before I hand over to my colleague Frederick, I would like uh, to shortly come back to the cartridge system we discussed earlier. This sample-specific design allows us also to use the high-pressure freezing for new fields of application, in this case, crystallography. And uh, before I go a little bit to the technical details, I want to recap how crystallography works in general. So you have your protein in a crystallized form. You cool it down to do the X-ray analysis. With the X-ray analysis, you get a diffraction pattern, which you can then use for the electron density map. And with this, uh, with this electron density map, you then finally can create your atomic model. So what is now the difference in using high pressure freezing for this um, uh, in this application in comparison to the conventional cooling process? So um, for the workflow, you start with the crystals in the crystallization drop. You harvest them on a loop, place them in the cryoprotection liquid, harvest them again, and then directly place them in a liquid nitrogen bath. This is the conventional way. However, for this manual handling, you need the cryoprotectants. And for a few crystals, or for really sensitive crystals, finding the right cryoprotection can take up to years. And then also, you reduce your success rate if your cryoprotectant is not as perfect for the sample it should be. Using high-pressure freezing for this kind of application, we can totally ignore the, the effect of cryoprotect, uh, cryoprotection because what we will do is we harvest um, the uh, protein crystal directly in the crystallization medium. And without any cryoprotection, we high pressure freeze the sample and then we can prepare it for X-ray analysis. So the big advantage is that we have no cryoprotectants, that is a super fast um, uh, process and you can end up with a 100% successful freezing rate. And it's a really applicable and suitable method, especially for really sensitive um, proteins like membrane proteins or membrane-bound proteins. So um, when you look now at the diffraction pattern, we can also nicely show that the ice quality is really vitreous. Um, here on the uh, upper image, you can see this black circle in the inner ring here, which is the cubic ice. And then the outer ring shows you hexagonal ice. However, freezing um, crystals in these um, tubes, we don't see any ice formation in the diffraction pattern, which means that we have a really vitreous state 
of the crystal as well as the surrounding liquid. The uh, gray rings you can see here is the background diffraction of um, the captain tube. However, this does not influence um, the diffraction pattern of the crystal later. And with this, I would like to thank you and hand over uh, to Frederick. So thank you, Julia. So now let's take a look at the application side. Uh, just to start a brief overview of some of the most important follow-up applications uh, using high pressure freezing as a starting point to preserve specimens in their native state. And each of these applications has its own cartridge, which is designed to provide the most optimum vitrification for that particular application. But even more important than the, these post-processing steps are the initial steps, freezing this huge variety of samples. And as Julia explained, there are a lot of restrictions concerning the thickness of the sample being vitrified. So here an overview of the most typical um, samples. And if your samples are really small, like for examples here, you can use plunge freezing and also cryo-imaging. If you have slightly bigger samples, like for example, a monolayer of cells or even C-Elegans, you can still use uh, plunge freezing, but probably you will not achieve a complete vitrification. So for any larger type of sample, you would need to use high pressure freezing. This is quite tricky because it means you have to size down and this is the most tricky part about high pressure freezing. So in the next couple of slides, I want to just select three types of samples and to show you how to freeze them in the most optimal way. But first, before doing that, uh, simple some sample loading restrictions. So the first question you have to ask, which are the carriers I'm going to use? So there are two materials, it's aluminum or copper. So if you want to plan to do any kind of, of sectioning with a diamond knife um, or cryoplaning, you need to use gold plated copper uh, carriers. Why? Because aluminum will simply destroy your diamond knife. If not, you can simply use aluminum, it's a good alternative. Next step is you can apply some treatments. For example, you can coat the inner sides of the carriers with eclecithin or hexadecin, and this will help to release the sample in the post-processing afterwards. So you can add these uh, treatments. And then we come to the filling. So as you can see, we will always have a closed sandwich, as you can see here, and the aim is to make a sandwich. You add your sample, you close the sandwich, and this is what is going to the freezer and will be uh, frozen. And as you can see, we have to fill a cavity here. So this is where your sample will be. And the most important rule, you cannot have any air inside. This will simply collapse and result in very bad freezing. Uh, for example, if you have plant tissue leaves, the best thing you can do is also old gas the air out of your sample. It's very critical. If, for example, your sample is too small and you need to fill up the space, you need to add a filler. And most typically, this will be a cryoprotectant. Why? Because it can suppress extracellular ice crystal formation. And you can see here a complete uh, list of uh, different cryoprotectants. I will not go in too much detail, but this choice is quite critical. And the choice of the filler will depend on two things. First of all, the nature of the sample. So your cryoprotectant should be compatible with your sample. And second, it also depends on the type of application. For example, if you want to do some cryosectioning, the best strategy is to use 20% of dextrain. So at the right side of the slides, you can see four uh, different treatments with four different cryoprotectants. So the sample is a drosophila, and you can see the one is yeast-based, uh, then we have dextrain, then we have uh, BSA, and uh, at the end we have uh, hexadecin. So you can see the different outcomes. So it's very critical um, to choose the right cryoprotectant. For example, with the dextrain, it comes out as a nice cookie, but the problem is that 
infiltration will be very poor because of the dextrin. On the other hand, for example, with hexadecine, it's a very good cryoprotectant, but it is still solid at minus 85 degrees. So during free substitution, it will be hampered a little bit. So it's very important to use the right type and right concentration of these cryoprotectants. So now let's take a look at, look at three of the most common samples. To first start with solar suspension, so for example, you have a yeast solution, and, and the first thing you would need to do is to concentrate your sample. So you can do that by vacuum filtration, or you can just simply use a centrifuge. What you end up with is a concentrated pellet, and you simply use a, a spatula to fill your carrier. It's very easy, very straightforward. Another example are C. Uh, elegans grown on or, or cultured on, on agar plates. There, the, the best trick is to use 20% uh, of BSA, add some drops, and collect um, the, the C. elegans organisms. And you can pallet them down in Eppendorf, or maybe even more easy, you take a micropipette, of, out of which you seal the end with some uh, dental wax, and you can again put this in Eppendorf and concentrate them at the tip. Cut it open and then you can simply add it here. So this is the second type of suspension uh, that you can freeze this way. Or what you can also do if you have an adherent cell culture and you want to obtain a pellet, there are also some strategies here. You can use a cell scraper, but again, you will uh, cause uh, some damage. So the alternative is to use trypsin, which is also quite tricky because it can influence uh, the cell. So the best strategy here is to quickly uh, rinse your or wash your culture plate with PBS and then add a very low amount, let's say 0.2% of trypsin, and you regularly look if the cells are detaching from the substrate when they round up. And from the moment you see them detaching, you quickly add some um, serum con um, containing medium because it will quench the trypsin. Then you can pellet your cells and also resuspend them in 20% of BSA. And this is what you see here. And then again, it's the same method you apply this paste into the carrier as it's shown here, and then you will simply close and vitrify your sample. So this is the first and the most easiest. Um, for example, for this monolayer, it requires harvesting the cells. If you don't want to do that, the second type of sample is monolayers grown on sapphire disks. And the first step to do this is to pre-treat the sapphires, and this is very important. So the first step would be to clean your sapphires and then to coat them with a uh, a certain uh, coating, for example, the most commonly used one is polyelalysine, or you can use laminin or fibronectin if, for example, you are working with uh, neurons. And after this coating, you will add a pattern. So this is the way you can, for example, add a pattern. So you have a holder, you place a sapphire, and on top of that, you place this index grid. And then you evaporate with carbon or you sputter with gold, about 15 to 20 nanometers, thereby um, transferring this alpha pattern on the grid. And this is important for two things, for two reasons. The first reason is during the whole uh, downstream processing, you need to know the site onto which the cell have grown, just to, to be very efficient and to not mis make any mistakes in the processing. So that's the first reason. Second reason, if you want to do any kind of post embedding clam, you can also uh, make a mosaic of the complete uh, sapphire and then it allows you to pinpoint certain cells you want to see in more detail uh, using electromicroscopy. So this is a CLEM approach, and therefore it's interesting to have this alpha pattern. So, okay, we have our sapphire, we have the coated uh, with polyelysine, the cells are there, so how are we going to freeze this particular sample? Well, we start again with the middle plate, and the difference here is that you have a rim at the bottom of the plate, 
this is to support the sapphire so typically you have the sapphire with your cells you have also a carrier which will be wetted wetted with hexadecine or the medium because again we cannot have air in the sandwich and then we have a space ring and all these components are added into the middle plate and then the sample is frozen so it's again very straightforward so this is a second type of vitrification cellular monolayers and the third uh, type of sample the most trickiest one is preparing tissue and here I uh, show the example for brain tissue so this is it's quite difficult so we have the choice here so the best way to obtain a 200 micrometer slice is of course to use a vibratome and two strategies you can use intracardiac perfusion so in this case because you are interested in, in the brain um, you can clamp the descending aorta so you can immediately tackle the brain and you're much faster and then you will perfuse with ice cold oxygenated uh, sucrose rich medium so cerebrospinal fluid and this will perfuse for some reasons it's also good to additionally also perfuse with some uh, paraformaldehyde and this is especially if you have an older type of fibrotome with a very large uh, deflection laterally so adding the, the pfa the paraformaldehyde will harden the tissue and enabling enabling you to actually provide or obtain uh, better sections or slices then it's also possible to add you know, no perfusion step and then you simply remove the brain place it in ice cold sucrose medium and then you can embed it in four uh, percent uh, agarose and then simply uh, slice using the vibratome in the end what you need to achieve is this kind of slice so this is a brain slice and then the next step is to use a punch and you will punch out in this case a 1.9 millimeter uh, disc because the inside here has a diameter of two millimeter so in some cases you need to perform freeze fracturing to fracture uh, your sample and then it's also good to scratch the bottom of the, the carrier so it, it will enhance the adhesion of the of the of the slice onto the the carrier and here you see the actual picture so this is the the slice which is punched and in this case i use 20% uh, of pvp as a cryoprotectant and then again a similar approach you close the sandwich and your sample is is vitrified so these are the three types of of um samples that are most vitrified and now we go from pre-processing to post-processing so what happens after high pressure freezing of these samples so again this is a complete overview at the left side you see what is called hybrid processing so you see also the arrows go from blue to gray so this is um it meets in the middle it's something in between cryo and room temperature with all the benefits of of preserving a high level of of structural preservation and at the right you see a full cryo workflow so here both post-processing and also imaging are performed at cryogenic conditions so let's first take a look at this first branch this is hybrid processing and what is hybrid processing so very easy the first step is always to vitrify your sample so that stays the same and then you will add your sample into this instrument this is a free substitution instrument and what happens here so you have your acetone which is hold at minus 90 degrees so you add your your vitrified carrier inside the acetone and then you will do what is called a substitution you will dissolve the ice at minus 90 degrees and this is very important because at this low temperature acetone cannot displace water molecules um, at the surfaces of our proteins and this is the reason why high pressure freezer in combination with free substitution is really beneficial to preserve um the, the um, ultrastructure 
And then there are two strategies you can choose of. The first one is to ramp up again to room temperature and use the classical infiltration at epoxy and also polymerization at, at 70 degrees. So you end up with these typical resin blocks. The other strategy is to ramp up to minus 40 degrees Celsius and then do an infiltration with an acrylic resin, HM20, for example, and also do the UV polymerization at minus 40 degrees. Again, ending up at room temperature with these uh, spaceman blocks. So what's the difference? Of course, both of them have a superior preservation of the ultra structure. And the acrylic resin has an extra benefit. It preserves both the fluorescence, which is good for clam, but also the antigenicity, which is very good for immunolabeling. So now let's take a closer look. So we talk about superior ultrastructural preservation. So just to give you an example, at the left side here, you see um, standard chemical fixation. At the right side here, you see the combination of high pressure freezer with freezer station. So you can immediately see the difference in 2D. Uh, the cell is much better preserved. Look at the bilipid layer, the Golgi, also the cytoplasm, and it's even more pronounced in 3D. As you can see here, this endosome is completely collapsed, whereas here the 3D uh, structure is really well preserved. And this is very important because nowadays these four typical 3D acquisition volume techniques are very important. And these techniques take quite some time, especially for the acquisition, but also for the segmenting afterwards. So that's why it's very important to start with a good sample. So the aim here is 3D or to extract 3D information from the sample. So of course, the best or the most important criteria is to, of course, also preserve the 3D information in your samples. That's why more and more researchers are really switching from uh, chemical fixation to this hybrid processing, because it still gives you all the advantages of room temperature while having also the benefits of a very good, what is called near state, native state preservation. Just a quick word on hybrid processing for CLEM. Um, so here, what is what is this? Um, you again will substitute your samples, and at the end you will embed in an uh, acrylic resin, which preserves the fluorescence. And this is completely automated. You can add a processor, and here, for example, you can click your frozen uh, vitrified carriers. You can add acetone for washing and some pure uh, HM20 resin. You switch on the instrument, and it will completely process the samples, including UV polymerization. Then you take out uh, your blocks, you make sections, and then you end up with these grids with sections. And the nice thing about this protocol is that you use the same sections to be imaged in a light microscope and an electron microscope. So in the end, the image for correlations uh, should simply be overlapped. So it's a very straightforward uh, way to correlate uh, those two uh, imaging modalities. And that's interesting for two reasons. First of all, for targeting. So let's let's assume you have these sections and you are aiming to, to look or to search for these particular events. So this kind of endocytotic event, which is also um, tagged because of the proteins associated with this event. So what do you do? You take your grid, you go to a light microscope and you simply screen the complete grid and you're looking for these tags. You will uh, save these coordinates, transfer your sample to a TEM, recall the coordinates, do some calibrations, and within 15, 20 minutes, you can immediately start to, to obtain, for example, a tomogram at your region of interest. So you go from hours of looking to maybe 20 minutes. So it's finding a needle in a haystack. So that is clamp for targeting, but also interesting more for light microscopists. 
they are used to look at these kind of images, so they know where the protein is, but they're missing the, the substellar context. So again, the combination uh, of being able to uh, analyze the same sample with both modalities enables you to really have a very nice correlation, and you can now, uh, let's say, put your intensities in a substellar uh, context. So this is a short mes message about CLAM. So now let's go back to our general overview. So I explained this hybrid processing. Uh, let's have a look now uh, at some really full cryo um, workflows. I will not explain CMOVs. I think it's very obvious. Everybody knows how CMOVs works. But interesting is that such a cryo ultramicrotope can also be used for cryoplaning. So it's also important nowadays. Um, and then the other branch here is uh, going to the, the FIP instrument. And you can also fracture your sample and transfer your sample to any kind of other instrument from TOF sims to synchrotron, which also improves the, the use of this kind of multimodal imaging. So let's have a closer look to our freeze fracture instruments just to, to introduce it to the system. So here we see this uh, special shuttle. So this is to transfer samples to any kind of instrument at cryo conditions in vacuum. So what do we do first? We load our vitrified samples on the cryo stage. You see a holder here, you see two carriers. So what is the machine? It will use a knife, it will fracture the sample. If necessary, you can also perform a slight etching step to enhance the topography. And to make it conductive and to, to really visualize the ultrastructure, you can also add platinum and um, a carbon layer. And here are two examples in a FIP instrument. This is Rosophila, this is a single cell, so you can really appreciate the ultrastructure. And this is an ideal first step for cryofibsam 3D acquisition. Why? Because, for example, you can say, okay, I'm interested in this region, so now you can localize and you can make a trench and start your uh, 3D acquisition, which is, for example, shown here. So here you vitrify, you load on the transfer shuttle, and you dock it onto the cryo stage of your SEM or FIPSEM. And this is the kind of contrast you can expect. You can recognize the nucleus, the Golgi, also the axons with the myelin. Um, and this is the kind of a 3D reconstruction you can obtain. So you really have access to a 3D reconstruction of native state preserved uh, sample. Also, cryo FIP lift out is more popular now. This is an example uh, by Julia Mahamid. So here, um, nematodes, the elegans, was frozen in between two carriers inside a single slot grid. So the, the next step was to, to, to retrieve the sample and perform some uh, light microscopy just to, to find the location of interest. You can see it more detailed here. So this is then the region of interest. You will load your sample into the FIP instrument, and then you can, using these uh, data relocate this the region of interest and start this lift out procedure. So in the end, you take out the lamella and you will attach it uh, on a grid, which is then brought to the crowd TM for tomography. Just a, a little uh, word about cryoplaning. So this cryo ultramicrotome can of course be used for cryosectioning, but more and more it's also used for uh, taking away vitrified material. For example, if you would have to take away 10 micrometer of vitreous ice using a FIP, it can take you up to a day. So uh, using this ultramicrotome is a really good way because you have the precision and you can also uh, determine if you want a planar planing or maybe a cross planing using this uh, trimming knife. So this is a very easy way to get rid of uh, vitreous material to go closer to your plane of interest. And the last uh, example for cryofib is something special. So here a grid was frozen in between two carriers two six millimeter carriers. And as a filler, 
methylpentane was used. So methylpentane is a very volatile uh, uh, solvent. Um, and the nice thing about it is that you can sublime it. You can sublime it at a very low temperature without any defeatification of your sample. And that's what happened here. So it was used as a filler. And in a later stage, it was just sublimed. And again, your nematode is again visible. And then you can perform what is called an on-grid lamella milling step. And then again, you can go to the cryotium uh, for tomography. So this is just another example of, of cryofib. So for the last uh, bit of the webinar, I would like to concentrate on our modules. And one of these modules is light stimulation. It's aimed at capturing dynamic events with a millisecond uh, precision. And visualizing such dynamic effect, events within a cell is a key step towards understanding cellular processes. Dynamic events can be captured using fluorescence microscopy. However, the subcellular context is largely missing because of the poor spatial resolution of the light microscope. Electron microscope Electromicroscopy, on the other hand, um, allows you to resolve the subcellular structure at high spatial resolution, but it cannot capture cellular dynamics because the specimen has to be fixed prior to imaging. So as a result, it's not possible uh, to completely understand these fast cellular uh, dynamics uh, using only one of these two imaging modalities. And to overcome these limitations, uh, correlative uh, microscopy techniques have been developed. In particular, live cell climb is of interest where cells are live imaged fixed at a desired moment and then processed for electron microscopy. And although SPLAM captured certain aspects of intracellular dynamics, it is still not sufficient and it has major disadvantages. So the first one, for example, is the poor time resolution, which ranges from seconds to up to minutes. And also the fact that there's always a delay between the observation and immobilization. Also, live cell climb is a post-embedding technique, which means that during light microscopy, you will look at the complete cell, but for electron microscopy, you will only look at the very thin prepared slice. So this means that correlation is more difficult because you cannot simply overlap the images. And also you have to deal with a lot of artifacts and again, shrinkage of, of the epoxy, which makes correlation even more difficult. So an alternative uh, approach is optogenetics. It involves examining how cells function by introducing a photosensitive receptor into their membranes. And these components are capable of altering the properties of the cells in response to being illuminated um, by a light beam of a certain wavelength. And channel rhodopsin is one of the most used receptors uh, for uh, optogenetics. It is a cation selective uh, channel that permits a sodium influx when illuminated by a 470 nanometer um, light. And in the case shown here, red cortical neurons were transfected with lentivalve vectors and the channel rhodopsin was expressed in their membranes. And when stimulated with light, the channel rhodopsin will generate a large photocurrent capable of stimulating an action potential. And also the channel rhodopsin is very sensitive such that millisecond time scale uh, uh, becomes really possible. And recently optogenetics has been uh, combined with high pressure freezing to study membrane trafficking at synapses on a millisecond time scale. And this novel technique called uh, flash and freeze was developed by Shikeke Watanabe, also in collaboration with uh, Rosenmund and, and Jorgensen. And here, a non-invasive light stimulation is used to induce synaptic transmission, and the resulting membrane dynamics are captured by high-pressure freezing at specific moments in time. So how does this really practically work? So we have our EMIs instrument, and with the light stimulation module, we select, for example, the blue module, uh, and we simply insert it in front of the instrument. And an optical fiber will direct the light from this module right to 
the hyperacid chamber. So the light stimulation is always performed when the sample is in the hyperacid chamber. And this is to really ensure this millisecond uh, precision. And this is also the reason why we use uh, transparent uh, cartridges, as you can see here. So the next step is to load uh, the sapphires. So again, we start with our cells, or neurons, who are transfected uh, with the channel robsin, and we make a sandwich. We add a ring, another sapphire. So again, a transparent sandwich. We add some more rings. This is to ensure that this whole assembly will not shift during uh, stimulation and subsequent freezing. And then this goes to the high pressure chamber, and then the stimulation protocol will start. And this is what you see here. You can predefine any protocol. In this case, there is a dark phase of 15 seconds, and there are three pulses each of five milliseconds. And 10 milliseconds after this stimulation event, you will uh, immobilize the sample through high pressure freezing. Here's some examples. So at the left side, you can see the situation short after a, the light onset. So you can see at height of the postsynaptic density, you can see the fusion of these uh, vesicles. And also later, 50 milliseconds, 100 milliseconds later, you can see the recycling of these membranes. So at both sides of the, the postsynaptic uh, density. And this experiment clearly shows that the fusion of synaptic vesicles can be captured using this uh, flash and freeze method. However, not all synapses will show these fusion effects, only about 30%. And moreover, the method is not as precise because it's very difficult to define when the action potentially has occurred, especially because you will stimulate your sample with light up to 10, 20 milliseconds. So in order to clearly define when the action potential occurs, we have now also switched to electrical stimulation. And now the setup is a little bit different. So again, we have our middle plate and now we added this circuit we added some capacitors because again, to achieve the millisecond precision, we need to bring the current into the high pressure chamber. So that's why we use capacitors, which are charged. We have resistors and we also have a light switch. So what is the principle behind? Again, loading the sample. The difference here is that we use non-conductive uh, spaced rings. Why? Because we don't want to use an alloy. We, we want to uh, stimulate our neurons, of course. And then we just load uh, our sample and this is brought to the high pressure chamber. And then light is used to close the switch. Your cells are electrically stimulated and then frozen at your time, uh, desired time point. And again, similar as to light stimulation, you can again completely set up uh, the protocol. You can see here the, an image of the actual um, middle plate. You can see the two pins which are needed to charge the plate right before it goes to the high pressure chamber. And here you see again the cartridge concept. And this, again, as Julia mentioned, allows us to be very creative and to, to really design new modules without changing the, the, the basic instrument. And just for your information, the field stimulation we use is about 10 volt per uh, centimeter. And this is some uh, first uh, results. So here this en enables you to have really a, a good precision and simply because the stimulus is only one millisecond. And you can easily see how these physicals will fuse and collapse uh, into the membrane. But of course, you cannot only use these uh, strategies of, of light and electrical stimulation uh, for investigating uh, neurons. You can also use it, for example, for muscle tissue. For example, as long as your specimen is responsive to a current or as long as you control cellular function, uh, for example, with opsins or, or caged compounds. But the critical issue or the critical uh, factor is that, of course, you should see a morphological change or a structural change because that's what you're aiming for. 
And of course, we also have challenges because we still uh, look at static images and only dissect and time points uh, from different cells. So we cannot follow one event over time. So we need to analyze a lot of images and this can be quite tricky. But nowadays also there's a solution for that. There, there are automation steps where you can acquire a full mosaic of a complete section as shown here. And you can do that overnight. And in the end, this image, for example, contains about 80 synapses. So it's, it's very easy to, to do these steps and then, then extract all the synapses and do the statistics. But the problem also here is that during freezing, we cannot use any cryoprotectant because we need to use a saline solution uh, with uh, a low resistivity. Why? Because, of course, we need to create a field stimulation. So then the question raises, okay, what about the freezing quality? Because it's a really difficult sample to freeze. And just to show, if we zoom in and if we zoom in more, as you can see here, we can see this is an example of electrical stimulation with a very uh, low concentration uh, physiological medium and you can see how extremely good this sample has been preferred although you don't use any cryoprotectant and with this image I would like to conclude uh, this webinar I hope you enjoyed it I hope you learned something um, we are still here to answer your questions uh, during a Q&A session or if you need any more information do not, do not hesitate to contact us so again thank you very much uh, for attending this webinar thanks Julia and Frederick that was an excellent presentation we have a few questions from the audience. If anyone else has a question, please feel free to post it in the questions box that appears on the right of your screen. So the first question is um, asking about, uh, is it possible to freeze TEM grids or tissue for on-grid FIB milling? Well, of course it's possible. And, and currently there are those two uh, strategies uh, which I showed during the webinar, um, both the one with uh, methylpentane and the other one with single slot grids. Uh, both have their advantages and disadvantages. For example, the methylpentane can be quite tricky because it's very volatile. Uh, and of course, it should also be compatible um, with your sample. And on the other hand, freezing and single slot grids can also sometimes be tricky because in the end, freezing is possible. Mm -hmm. It's always easy, but retrieving uh, your grids, you don't want to cause damage to your grids and you don't want to uh, fracture your sample. So okay. for TEM grids, those are currently um, the used strategies. For tissue, it's even more difficult. And the reason, of course, you don't want a big volume or a thickness of 200 micrometer, because it would mean that you have to remove a lot of material using a focused ion beam, which can take hours. So Ooh. there the strategy would be to again use a vibratome, um, but not size down to 20 micrometer. Why? Because a vibratome also induces damage. So the, the trick here would be probably to, to um, make a vibratome section of 100 micrometer, mm -hmm. uh, freeze it, and then using cryoplaning in combination um, with a correlative approach uh, to, to find or to target your, your plane of interest. So also being able to remove both sides because typically those sides of the vibratome section are damaged because of the razor blade. So it all depends also on the quality of your vibratome. So this is currently uh, what is done uh, now. Okay. And we have a question about um, what is the maximum size of the sample which can be vetrified? So maybe I can answer this question. So the maximum limit at the moment is 200 micrometers in depth. What, what can be vetrified in a really good way? So this is a physical limit. Unfortunately, there's at the moment no way to um, go around this. However, you can have um, different carriers for the EMI. So you can have 
three millimeter in X and Y or also six millimeter um, in X and Y. So there you can vary in the size of the sample. And here also the vitrification is um, equally good on, on all the regions inside um, the X and Y dimension. Okay. And then um, we have a question about light stimulation. Is it necessary to use two sapphires for light stimulation? So no, this is not necessary. You can also use a stacking where you have um, a flat specimen carrier and then a sapphire on top. And this is especially used for um, people who like to do light stimulation. Then they have a carrier where they can place their tissues in. Also in the machine itself, the light stimulation comes from the top. So actually okay. only the top part is necessary to be light transmitted. Okay, and then we have a question, kind of a follow-up question on that. Can electrical stimulation also be performed on three millimeter sapphire grids? Uh, no, for currently we only offer the six millimeter and the reason is of course, if you want to create this field stimulation, you also need to have a certain resistance, and that's why we, we use a six millimeter. So only six millimeter as, as possible. Okay, and then um, can you adjust or can we adjust the intensity of light modules? At the moment, uh, we can't um, okay. adjust the intensity of the light modules. In general, this is a really good idea, and we would like to do this. Um, however, you know when you get the light module what the intensity of the light module will be that you're currently using. Okay, and then the next one is, can the middle plate for the electrical stimulation be reused? So yes, typically about 20 times uh, more or less, okay. yes. Okay, and um, is a biopsy, so is a biopsy a better alternative for um, freezing tissue? Uh, it depends. It all depends, of course, on, on your expertise and also on mm -hmm. the type of tissue. Uh, we also frequently have different feedback. Uh, okay. Some groups are very good, um, let's say, experiences with with uh, these biopsy needles, uh, from a from a freezing point of view, vitrification point of view, of course, it's much better to to freeze um, this kind of shape because mm -hmm. you will have it result in a better uh, freezing. So from the freezing point, yes, uh, okay. as long as it's it's possible to to really have a nice biopsy without air inside. That's that's quite tricky sometimes. Okay, and then we have a question about plants. Can you cryofixate vegetal material? Yes, and there it depends a little bit on the type. For example, if you would have a leaf um, which is filled with air pockets, you need to remove the air by using uh, a vacuum to force the cryoprotectant into these air pockets because you simply cannot freeze air. So it's typically possible. Also there, the tricky point is that your cells are typically larger. So you have to imagine okay. if you want to freeze 100 micrometers and your cells are 60 or 70 micrometer, you would basically cut them open. So you have to really think about which type of uh, of, of sample you have. If you have, for example, root tips, which have very small cells, this is really possible and you can freeze the complete root. So it all depends on, on which uh, type of, of uh, plant you, you are freezing. Okay, and then we have a question about um, a protein crystal. So it says um, protein crystal won't disintegrate um, while, vi while vibration of high pressure freezer, would that affect the protein crystal or maybe cause some sort of disintegration? This is something we are um, currently still um, a, a model that is still in development. So we are testing different um, types of crystals, also different sizes and different compositions. And here we are still in the yeah 
experimental phase to find out for what kind of protein crystals this is suitable, if it's suitable for everything, or are there limitations? But as soon as we know more, we will uh, yeah, definitely discuss this topic. And, and we have um, a question about the um, planchette. So what's your failure rate with the um, copper planchette when you put it in the high vacuum sputter machine? Um, so they, the person guesses that you fractured the sandwich with, the manual knife, with a manual knife. Yes, so first of all, if you do any type of, of freeze fracturing, you always have to open them in the vacuum. That's important to not have any kind of contamination. And I think what, the, the, what they mean here is uh, if you freeze such a sandwich that they can sometimes open right before uh, you, you, you load them into the cryo stage of a, of a coating instruments. And, and there my, my uh, tip would be to use PVP, it's uh, polyvinyl pyrolidon. So you make a concentration of about 20% and you can use this as a cryoprotectant. It's a very good cryoprotectant, especially for tissue. And this will also uh, assure that, that your two um, carriers really stay together until they are fractured by uh, the knife in the high vacuum coater. Okay, and then I think we've got one final question about, um, so how accurate is freeze fracturing? So of course it's it's not really ac accurate because you cannot it's not like a microtome where you define a certain plane. Uh, what happens? It all depends on the sample. It will follow the the path of least resistance. So typically in between the bilipid uh, membrane. So you don't have really a good control. But more or less, for example, if you have two carriers of 100 micrometer, you can expect the fracture uh, in the middle somehow. But it's not that accurate. Okay. Well, that brings us to the end of our webinar. So thank you again, Julia and Frederick, for a very illuminating presentation and a fantastic discussion. And thanks also to our sponsor, Leica Microsystems. And finally, thanks to you, the audience, for taking the time to attend and listen in. If you've enjoyed the webinar and would like to view the video recording of the session, please visit the webinars page on bitesizebio.com. It should be available within the next 24 hours. And there you can see the other webinars we've lined up for you on BiteSizeBio. So until next time, good luck in your research and goodbye from all of us at Leica Microsystems and Bitesize Bio. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the webinar. To view the full video version of this and all of our other webinars, please visit bitesizebio.com slash webinars. Finding the right mentor can make all the difference in your research journey. But what if you don't have one? Look no further than Mentors at Your Benchside, the podcast that offers curated advice from experienced researchers on lab skills, techniques, and career progression. With short, easy-to-access episodes, you can get the help you need to succeed in the lab. Visit bitesizebio.com forward slash podcasts or search for Mentors at Your Benchside in your podcast app to subscribe and get help and advice from seasoned scientists.